I'm Anton Hellman. I'm Justin Morgenstern. And this is the Journal Jam Podcast. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high-quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. Therapeutic hypothermia after cardiac arrest is not new. It was a thing about 5,000 years ago in Egypt, actually. But fast forward to the 20th century and the first clinical trial of therapeutic hypothermia after cardiac arrest in 1958 reported an incredible 50% survival. Pretty much the exact same survival rate that they reported in the recent TTM2 trial. And back in the early 2000s, therapeutic hypothermia was widespread. As soon as we'd achieve ROSC, we'd go running for the ice packs and cool the crystalloid and get the ICU on board to set up for that cooling protocol. It was considered pretty much the standard of care. We were all convinced that cooling them would not only save their lives, but save their brains so that they could think and talk and walk like they did before the cardiac arrest. The pathophysiology made sense. The main idea being that cerebral blood flow and oxygen consumption decreases, which preserves autoregulation and saves the brain from ischemic insult and edema. But as science does with pretty much everything, evidence comes along and changes things. The famous TTM trial, the original one, was published in 2013. It was that huge RCT that showed no difference between a target temperature of 33 degrees and 36 degrees. And even though both groups were technically hypothermic, a few logs were taken off the fire of therapeutic hypothermia and it was no longer considered the standard. This year, even a bigger RCT was published, the TTM2 trial, and we now have new guidelines from ILCOR as well. You'd think that we'd have a clear answer in 2021 on whether or not to cool patients after cardiac arrest. Well, not so clear. Enter Journal Jam 19. So Justin and Miz, let's try and clear up the muddy waters of therapeutic hypothermia with a deep dive into the world's literature. Oh, wait, I forgot to introduce Dr. Morrison. So Dr. Mizuho Morrison, who is new to EM cases, which I can't believe she's new to EM cases because she's uh, a huge presence in the med ed world. She's an emergency doctor in Southern California at LA County, USC, and Kaiser, and is the senior director of medical education at Hippo Education. It's been a while since we hung out in the deep snow in Denver, ASAP 19, because of the darn pandemic. It's great to finally have you on EM cases, Ms. Welcome. Anton and Justin, thank you so much for letting me come on your show. It's fantastic. It's such an honor. Excelente. All right, Justin. So, Journal Jam 19, what are we going to dive into? Yeah. So, you know, Anton, unlike some of our previous deep dives in these journal jams, I don't actually think we're going to uncover new data here. I don't think anybody should expect that. I think almost everybody listening will have heard of these RCTs as they came out. Uh, but I think it's really valuable to go through these trials because I actually think as I read them, it's a lot more complicated than it might seem at first glance. So, so our hope is when we review all the trials together in one spot, hopefully we'll be able to clear up some misconceptions that may have brewed about this data and really help people form their own scientifically valid opinions on this topic. 
That sounds great. Yeah, this is going to be a little bit different than our usual deep dives, but I've heard already a lot of people saying out there that uh, cooling after cardiac arrest is dead, which as you'll see, is not exactly true. But before we jump into the clinical trials, Justin, one of the big EBM concepts that we've talked about before on the Journal Jam podcast is the importance of having a sort of pre-test probability. It's not exactly test, but kind of a probability in mind when you're interpreting new trials. So if you've looked at old trials, you have this kind of already preconceived idea of what to expect for a new trial. So if we imagine Let's say that we're back in 2002, just before the publication of the two RCTs that started the common practice of therapeutic hypothermia. How optimistic would we have been back then? So in other words, what data was there pre-2002? How likely was it that hypothermia was going to save lives and save brains at, say, the turn of the century? One of the most interesting things to a nerd like me, at least, is to go back to some original groundbreaking emergency medicine trials and looking at their references and sort of follow that back like you're clicking through like Wikipedia forever. And you'll find out that, you know, these things have been discussed for a long, long time. And I don't think we're going to go through five decades of animal studies and observational data. Uh, I tried to. Uh, I I may have scratched through five or 10% of the studies that were out there. Uh, And there definitely was some data before for the two big RCTs that supported therapeutic hypothermia. But I'll tell you, as I read it through, uh, I, I think in general, if we deep dived every paper, a lot of it is pretty flawed. And there were a couple big themes that I noticed that would say that the previous data doesn't necessarily apply to our, uh, our patients. So one of them, basically all the studies that I could find before the year 2000, looking at animals, uh, was in the context of sort of a cardiac surgery model, where what they did was they, they cooled the animal first and then put them into cardiac arrest. That's very, very different than having an arrest, waiting the hour that we can find to have our patient, and then cooling them. These patients were all cool before the arrest happened. Or I said patient. These animals were all cooled before the arrest ha- happened. So again, I, that doesn't sound like it's going to apply to our emergency department patients. The other thing I found looking through some of these animal studies is that you know, there's a lot of animal data. You'll see it cited over and over again that says that fever is really bad in cri- in critical illness. And that makes sense. But in the animal studies, in general, they're not looking at fever at all. What they're looking at is hyperthermia. So they would heat the animals up from the outside, whether it's a heat lamp or a water bath. Again, that's very, very different than a fever caused by the hypothalamus, sort of an internally driven uh, temperature. So There was a fair amount of animal data, and some people will tell you the animal data is very consistent to support hypothermia. I think there's some pretty major flaws when it comes to our cardiac arrest patients. Um, There's also a fair amount of – there was some observational data before the two major RCTs. Again, I don't think it's worth taking too much time in it, mostly because it's – almost too sensational. Uh, the same group, Bernard, that we're going to talk about his RCT in just a second, published an observational trial in 1997. And they it was a before and after. So they used historical controls. And he, the so basically that sets you up for, to have bad selection bias. But it, it, the numbers are outstanding. 100% of the control group died and only half of the hypothermia uh, group died. That that just sounds way too good to be, to to believe in in my books. It, it reminds me a lot of reading those that 
you know, that classic vitamin C trial where everybody uh, survived because of vitamin C and sepsis. It just sounds too good to be true. And I think probably the control group was biased there. So again, that's a long, long winded rant. That's a long way of saying that, yeah, there's, there's some data before these RCTs came out, uh, but none of it was strong enough in my eyes to be entirely convincing. And it leaves a lot of questions. I think it was reasonable to start these RCTs, but at the same time, you know, I wouldn't be betting on hypothermia saving your life. Yeah, so let's get back to your question. So this is something I think is very, very key in evidence-based medicine. If we went back to 2002, that's hard to do now. I wasn't even in medical school in 2002. But if you had to guess before these RCTs came out, were they going to show a benefit? You know, I think you have to take a broad view. In medicine, most of the trials that we do actually end up being negative. And if you consider hypothermia to say a drug, which in your mind do you think is more likely to actually have save somebody's life? I don't know. But in general, hypothermia seems to be a pretty broad brush. I, I'm not sure that I would give it a higher score going into these trials than, than a, a drug or a vasopressor or a procedure. So if you ask me, I think if you went back to 2002, um, I think the chances that hypothermia was going to decrease mortality based on the bit of data that we had at that uh, time would be not zero, but pretty low. I would have given it a, a score of under 10% or so when, before these first couple RCTs uh, were published. You know, I'm going to have to agree with you, Justin, although in prep for this uh, recording with you guys, I was prepping my notes and my son, who's 10, walks by and says, what are you working on? And I explain what hypothermia is and therapeutic hypothermia. He goes, Dad, don't you guys already know that? I mean, we see it all the time in the movies. Someone gets frozen and then you bring them back to life. He was like so disgusted by the fact that we doctors don't really already know that. But <laughs> it was, I had a good chuckle. But looking back, I mean, 2002, when you think about the pragmatic parts of it, let's be honest, like we were far less sophisticated with our cooling methods, right? And so cooling in the beginning was fairly archaic. Ice packs to the groin and axilla are not exactly advanced nor controlled. We still do that initially, but slowly we've developed these cooling blankets um, that admittedly don't have that thermostatic regulation. But nowadays we have those fancy closed loop cooling devices that we didn't have in 2002 that have thermostatic control. And so I think for sure, like that influences uh, outcomes Looking back, I would say having positive neuro outcomes is definitely less than 10% back in, you know, over 20 years ago. So thankfully, um, you know, we have better devices now. But looking back, I would say we probably caused more harm <laughs> than actual good. Yeah, a little frostbite in the axilla. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't even imagine having ice packs to my axilla and growing awake, right? Like, that just sounds like torture. <laughs> As we've been alluding to, the whole hypothermia world changed in 2002 when these two groundbreaking RCTs were published in the same issue of the New England Journal. Ms., let's talk about the first paper. It's by Bernard and colleagues in New England. Yeah, let's do it. So Bernard, Gray, and Boost et al., and this was the title was Treatment of Comatose Survivors of Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest with Induced Hypothermia. This is New England Journal 2002. And their methods, uh, this was an unblinded, quasi-randomized control trial of 84 patients with an initial cardiac rhythm of ventricular fibrillation. So mind you, this is shockable rhythms, not non-shockable. We'll talk about that later. Who had achieved ROSC, uh, but were persistently comatose. Hypothermia was 33 degrees for 12 hours with then active rewarming, and cooling was done by ice packs. This was 2002. <laughs> so the results showed the primary outcome was neurologic function, well enough to be sent home or to a rehab facility, so fairly high functioning. This occurred in 49% of the hypothermia group, 
and 26% of the normal thermia group. Now, the p-value here was 0.046, although when I plug in the numbers into a fragility index calculator, you get a fragility index of 0 and a p-value of 0.06. Now, mortality here was not statistically significant, but there was a potentially important difference, 68% versus 51%. So let's talk about the caveats. First of all, the trial was not truly randomized as they assigned patients based on the day of the month, which is a major potential source of bias. So if you're a fan of hyperthermia, you might exclude older patients with multiple comorbidities or other poor prognostic factors on the days that you know they would be assigned uh, to receive hypothermia. There was also a little bit of selection bias. They don't tell us how many people were screened to find the 84 patients. So selection bias is also a significant possible problem. This trial was not blinded, so which makes sense as it would be very hard to blind hypothermia, but it increases the risk of bias certainly a lot. And then the ICU care was a little bit different, and perhaps the most important bias to keep in mind here is that hypothermia requires more clinical attention from both nurses and physicians. It's a team effort. It's quite possible that the benefit seen here was simply from more intensive critical care rather than the hypothermia itself. And I think this is a really important lesson. If we decide not to use hypothermia, that doesn't mean we should ignore these results. They still require high-intensity critical care. And then the other issue is that there were some patients in the control group who actually developed a fever. And although the numbers aren't quite clear from the manuscript, you know, we do know that fever, of course, influence is sort of a separate conversation, right? It influences the ultimate outcome. The fact that that wasn't controlled in the control group or any group is a problem. All right. I'm ancient enough to remember practicing EM when this Bernard study came out. And looking at more closely now, it has way more caveats than I remember when we all got on board with cooling patients nearly 20 years ago now. Everyone gets all really excited. We all start doing this and we don't really quite dig deep enough into the papers to really realize that actually the evidence might not be that great. But that's just the first study. Uh, There's a second study in 2002 out of the New England Journal. Justin, what about that second study, the uh, HACA study, H-A-C-A study? Is that any better than the Bernard study? Yeah, so HACA is definitely bigger and better. I'm hoping if just Bernard was better, that we'd be good enough in medicine to realize there was a lot of caveats there. Like the Bernard study alone is not a great RCT, but the fact there were two at the same time does skew things a little bit. A slightly bigger trial, so 275 comatose adult patients with ROSC after a witnessed cardiac arrest with a shockable rhythm. Uh, A little bit about selection bias. They did have to look through 3,500 patients to find those uh, 275. They are patients who expect to have good outcomes. They had a short downtime. They had a presumed cardiac origin of arrest. Slightly longer hypothermia. The target was 32 to 34 for 24 hours. They used an external cooling blanket in this trial. We all know this. This is exactly the hypothermia we used for years. Their primary outcome was good neurologic outcome at six months. And again, the numbers are astounding. It was 55% in the hypothermia group versus 39% in the normothermia excellent uh, p-value in this trial. This trial, unlike Bernard, also showed mortality. So mortality at six months uh, was improved 41% versus 55%. So the numbers are, are really good. Like this is a, you read this trial and it's like, we, we need to be doing this for our patients. 
But you got to remember the the caveats of these trials, and sometimes bias is contributing to these numbers potentially. A few things that stand out in this trial. So first thing is their sample size. Uh, they don't actually tell us how they decided to include 275 patients, but they do tell us that enrollment was slower than they expected, and they stopped the trial just because they ran out of money, not because of they reached any specific sample size. Uh, so that's a bit of a, a red flag. That allows for potential p-hacking. It allows for, for problems if you just stop the trial whenever you want or when you run out of money. Again, just like the Bernard trial, again, I don't blame the authors here at all. It was not blinded. I don't know exactly how I would do a blinded hypothermia trial. I'm not saying that it's easy, but when you're not blinding a, a trial, it lets a lot of bias seep in, especially we talked about this at length in the TPA and stroke trial. Neurologic outcomes are pretty subjective. There's a lot of variability in those outcomes. Now, at least in this trial, the doctors and the patients weren't blinded, but the outcome assessors were. So that pretty that helps a fair amount. And mortality itself is pretty objective. But I think we might come back to this a few times during the trial because mortality in the hypothermia area era may be less objective than we wish it was because a lot of it relies on ICU decisions and when you decide to withdraw care and when you know that patients are getting hypothermia, you might give them an extra day or two and you might withdraw on the other group earlier. So as much as we think of a mortality as a very objective outcome, I still worry in an unblinded trial, it can lead us askew. So all that is to say, you know, these outcomes sound amazing. There's big, absolute differences in things that we really care about but they may be a bit of a facade. Bias can always shape these kind of results. And you know, there are some of the same caveats that uh, Mies talked about uh, in the Bernard paper. You know, it, a lot of the control group here developed fever. Uh, the hypothermia group, again, they're in the ICU for, uh, they're probably getting closer attention in the ICU. That it Maybe it's that closer attention than the hypothermia itself. So bottom line, again, these are very, very impressive results. They're patient-oriented, they're outcomes that we care about. That is really important. And I think the medical community was right to act on these results, but we have to keep in mind these results are nowhere close to definitive. There are a lot of weaknesses. So if we go back to that idea of that pretest probability you're talking about, Anton, if we started in 2002 and I thought that it was like maybe 10% that these trials were going to come out positive, these shift me. Like I definitely think there's more likely, but maybe I get as high as 50%. I'm nowhere, definitely not at 100% that hypothermia for sure is um, uh, saving lives, saving brains. Honestly, when I, when I came into medicine, I always fell more into the camp that it was probably below 50%. I would have bet pretty strongly that replications of these hypothermia trials would be negative over time, just because I think at a base level, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that hypothermia is going to have this drastic a result on saving your life and saving your brain when it's applied two to three hours after a patient has a cardiac arrest. I think basic medical school stuff, the ischemia and the damage to the brain is probably done in those 10 minutes of the arrest, not three hours later. So that was my sort of general take walking away from these these trials. Mm -hmm. That was really interesting. I wonder what you two think about the effect of just initiating a hypothermia protocol and the decision to withdraw care. So I think that's a really interesting sort of confounding variable with this. Just Let's just flesh that out a bit. So you have, let's just imagine we have a patient uh, who comes in, cardiac arrest, we achieve ROSC, we start a cooling protocol in one patient and in another patient, we don't start a cooling protocol. In the ICU, how, how do you think that's going to affect their decision-making up there in terms of withdrawal of care? I mean, we all know that it's very difficult to predict outcomes early after cardiac arrest, and they're going to be waiting a certain amount of time. But do you think that amount of time that they wait before they make the call of what they think the prognosis is going to be and withdrawal of care, do you think that's going to be affected at all, whether 
they put in a, a cooling protocol. The, most of the cooling protocols are at least 24 hours, right? So I, I don't work in the ICU, uh, so I can only go off of some of the data that's out there and, and what people say. I, I think it can skew in multiple ways. And actually, I think this is a harm that maybe we need to come back and talk to at the, at the end. So there's a lot of data that has come out that if you cool patients, you probably need to wait a minimum of five days to make your final prognostication. And if you think about that, that means it, it, could, it could skew in both ways. So if you give up on people before five days, we might be letting people die who could actually live. Conversely, keeping people around for five days in the in the ICU may mean that a hypothermia group is going to have a few extra people survive that wouldn't have if we decide to give up on them after 24 four hours. So I think it, it could skew this potentially in either way in terms of the data. But I, I think the other thing to really keep in mind, when we get to the end of this, we're going to realize that 33 doesn't seem to be all that different from 36, 37 and a half. If hypothermia means that you must wait for five full days in an ICU, and you multiply that by every cardiac arrest around the world, think about the cost of five ICU days before making a decision. Think about the the harm to the patient, even if they're going to end up dead. Like we, we, Most of us don't want to spend the last five days of our life in, in an ICU. So I do think that's a harm that we have to think about as well. I completely agree. There's almost a sense of, I mean, putting myself in the unit if if and I just like both of you don't work in the ICU but if if I did I would think it would create almost a sense of duty right and and perhaps false hope so are you keeping this patient around longer just simply because they're cooled just to you know extend out that time frame whereas a non-cooled patient you're able to be a little bit more objective so putting myself in that position I I don't think I think it'd be very difficult to overcome that bias and not just bias but practicality of it yeah. And, and on the flip side of what Justin said, there might be a few patients who would benefit from just the five days of waiting, regardless of whether they're cooled or not. It's very hard to identify those patients. And then do you think that, you know, selection bias obviously plays into this as well, right? If you have a child or, well, let's not even go there. If you have a young adult versus, you know, someone in their 80s with a ton of comorbidities, I think that could also uh, definitely sway your decision making. I think clinically speaking, there's something we probably will have to say multiple times in this in this podcast, which is, I, I at the end of the day, I don't really care if you decide to do hypothermia or not. What I care about is these patients deserve the exact same level of critical care, exact same level of attention, one-to-one nursing, whether or not you're doing hypothermia protocol. So if hypothermia is the way to get one-to-one nursing and somebody at their bedside at all times, that may be what you have to do. But I don't think that should be the decider. I think you should recognize the level of care they need, whether or not the temperature matters. That's a great point. Always coming up with great points there, Justin. Wow. You mentioned that it sounds a little bit like uh, the TPA trials. This topic also sounds a little bit like TXA in terms of, you know, the early trials, they kind of weren't that well done. They were small. They were very positive and they got everyone excited. So suddenly everyone's using TXA for everything. Um, And then once we get some you know, some bigger trials like the HALTA trial, suddenly we're like, oh, maybe the stuff doesn't work for everyone. So we've talked about uh, these two RCTs so far, and you've probably guessed now we're going to move on to the big uh, TTM trial because that was uh, that was kind of the the really big one that really got us changing our minds on therapeutic hypothermia. So uh, Ms, tell us about the TTM trial, the first one in 2013. Yeah. yeah, yeah. First of all, I love the analogy to TXA. It's so, so accurate and on point. 
So this study was huge. And like many of you, you'll recall probably just from the first author's name, this was by Nielsen et al. And the title is Targeted Temperature Management at 33 Degrees Celsius versus 36 Degrees uh, After Cardiac Arrest. This is New England Journal 2013. This is a multi-center randomized control trial from 36 different ICUs in Europe and Australia, 950 comatose adult patients on arrival to hospital after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, regardless of the presenting rhythm. They randomized them to either a target temperature of 33 or 36 degrees Celsius for 28 hours with mandatory sedation. Now, the results of this were interesting. It showed there was no difference in the primary outcome of death at the end of the trial, 50% versus 48%, the p-value of 0.51, and also no difference in neurologic outcomes. Now, there were a few caveats. So patients and treating physicians were not blinded. To your point earlier, Anton, it's hard to blind uh, the treating uh, teams here. But the physicians performing neurologic prognostication and the outcome assessors were. So that's good. Survivors essentially all had great neurologic outcomes in both groups, which seems different from the other cardiac arrest research. And despite being the largest study to date, there's still very large confidence intervals. With 95% certainty, the hazard ratio could be anything from 0.89, which would indicate an exciting benefit, to 1.128, which would indicate significant harm. So some have raised concerns about the speed of hypothermia as it took more than six hours to get to 33 degrees, and it's possible that time does matter. Both groups were temperature controlled, so the TTM doesn't really tell us anything about whether hypothermia helps, just that the target temperature doesn't matter. And I remember there was a lot of discussion about this, because getting to 33 is more challenging, requires more sedation, uh, more monitoring. So that's what we took away from this. Yeah, I think there's actually a really interesting behind-the-scenes insight uh, in terms of the problems we have in medicine with science here, because Nielsen wanted this to be an exact replication of of uh, the original HACA trial. He wanted to do hypothermia versus no temperature control at all, but they, he was told it was standard of care and wasn't allowed to do it. So unfortunately, they, they knew when they ran this trial that it wasn't going to give us the answer that we wanted, which it is, does hypothermia work at all? So we've had to work slowly towards, towards that goal. And yeah, it gives us a partial answer. It, it tells us that 33 is no better than 36, but it doesn't actually answer the question of do either of those temperatures matter at all. Yeah, it's interesting how they, they were looking just at that specific answer and then the community kind of took that trial as this is the end of cooling patients, uh, which I think is the wrong message. Practically speaking, I remember a lot of our critical care colleagues switched to 36 degrees after TTM. And like I was just saying, a lot of eMERGE docs kind of took it as uh, we don't have to cool patients anymore. And then you'd get the call from the from the ICU said, oh, yeah, you do have to cool. Let us figure out what temperature to, to decrease them to. So that decision of what temperature to target, again, it's really an ICU decision. So for us, it was really just a decision of whether to pull out that cooling blanket if you have one of those or throw ice packs in the axilla and, and groin, maybe cooled crystalloid. And how soon can we get them to the ICU uh, to start that fancy cooling protocol that they have there? In our 2015 ACLS guidelines episode, we actually talked about how the guidelines at that time recommended initiating targeted temperature management for all post-arrest patients who achieved ROSC and that it was really up to your intensivist what the targeted temperature should be between 32 and 36 degrees. So that was kind of, that became kind of the standard then in 2015. One important thing to remember in the TTM trial was that they excluded patients 
with an intracranial event, any major hemorrhage and pregnancy. So at that time, they were considered relative contraindications to cooling. So I think that's just one important thing that even today, you know, if you're going to cool a patient, that in these big trials, they did exclude patients with, you know, big brain bleeds, massive hemorrhage, and pregnancy. All right, let's talk a bit more about the timing of cooling, because like TXA, how early you do it might actually be a major factor in whether it works or not. We were talking about how ischemia is likely to occur very early, and so it might just be that the earlier you start cooling, the better. In the TTM trial, you mentioned that it took many hours to get to the targeted temperature. If the brain was ischemic, I could imagine that you know time is brain sort of thing. And maybe we're just getting to these patients too late. So Justin, I understand that there are a couple of pre-hospital studies. Is there any data to suggest that treating these patients earlier might result in better outcomes? So I can give you the really quick answer. No. Uh, but I guess it's journal jam. So we, we generally go into a little bit more detail. I, I don't want to spend a ton of time on these papers uh, because they all basically say the same things and they'll have some of the same caveats that we went through with our first couple trials. Uh, but I do think it's important to at least hear about them because one of the big things that we hear about this hypothermia hypothesis is that you know the brain damage really does occur early. And so that cooling early really should be important. I mean, if we like, go back to those animal studies, if we could have people hypothermia before they decided to have their cardiac arrest, then maybe we could make some pretty big outcomes. I, I don't know you need some precognition, but this may be the, the way of the future. Just cool everybody's apartments right down and we'll do much better. But so far, we have three different RCTs that look at cooling people before they hit the hospital in the EMS, and none of them has shown a benefit. So sort of takes away from that idea of time is brain, or even by the time you get EMS there, it might maybe it's just too late. Bottom line, these are not definitive trials by any means. It's possible that if we ran a much bigger trial, we could find a small benefit hidden here. But the best summary so far is we have three major RCTs and all of them are negative. So there's really no evidence at all that starting hypothermia in the pre-hospital setting is helping patients at all. Okay. So Justin, time does not seem to matter when it comes to therapeutic hypothermia, at least based on these trials. Let's see where we are at this point. So we had two RCTs that changed the post-arrest world. They showed very impressive results but we had a few questions and concerns about them. Then the TTM trial was a high quality trial that showed no benefit between 33 degrees compared to 36 degrees, but didn't actually test hypothermia against doing nothing. So we kept on cooling patients and left it up to the intensivist to decide on the target temperature. Uh, there were a few negative trials in the pre-hospital setting. So we have some mixed results so far. I'm not sure I could be convinced either way, really. But I understand that the next RCT we need to talk about is actually a positive study. So maybe this will settle things for us. Ms., can you tell us about the uh, Hyperion trial? Hyperion trial, yes, of course. So now remember that up until now, TTM was also studied in patients who had cardiac arrest from shockable rhythms, right? But before this study, it was really widely debated whether there was benefit for non-shockable rhythm of cardiac arrest as well. So this study looked into whether TTM compared with targeted normothermia would improve neurologic outcomes in this patient population from non-shockable rhythms. So this was by 
Lescarot in the New England Journal in 2019 called the Hyperion Trial. It was an open-label, pragmatic, multi-center randomized controlled trial. They had 581 adult patients with cardiac arrest, both in and out of hospital, with a non-shockable cardiac arrest from any cause who remained comatose after ROSC. And patients were randomly assigned using a one-to-one ratio to one of the following two groups. You either got put into the 33 degrees Celsius for 24 hours and then slowly started rewarming, or you were put in the targeted normothermia group. They quantified that as 36.5 to 37.5 Celsius for 24 hours. And the primary outcomes, they were looking at survival with a favorable 90-day neurologic outcome assessed by using what was called a cerebral performance category, the CPC score of two or less. So for the results, so the primary outcome, as mentioned, they were looking at favorable neurologic outcome at 90 days. For the hypothermia group, the result was 10.2% compared to 5.7 in the normothermia group, with an absolute difference of about four and a half. Mortality was not statistically different. And that to me isn't super surprising because I feel like if you're, I mean, all these patients are so high risk. Now, the caveats is that anytime you're mixing both in-hospital and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, it's difficult, right? There's going to be a lot of confounding factors, and so it was difficult. Now, they did try and minimize that by having good exclusion criteria. So they excluded patients with no initiation of CPR or had downtime for more than 10 minutes or those that had received CPR for greater than 60 minutes despite obtaining ROSC. So I feel like for those out-of-hospital patients, they tried to do their best to minimize and make it an equal playing field, but it's very different versus in-hospital patients who are obviously going to receive CPR right away uh, and likely have better outcomes. The p-value is also very borderline with a fragility index of 1. And in an open-label trial with many sources of bias, the fact that the results would change if a single patient was recorded as having a different outcome is important and certainly adds uncertainty about these results. Now, the other interesting caveat is that the way they assess neurologic outcomes was determined by a phone interview, so not exactly super accurate, and it was definitely subjective, which is a bad combination in an open trial. The groups were treated differently in potentially important ways. For example, patients in the hypothermia group were heavily sedated and sedated for longer. The total temperature management time was also longer in the hypothermia group, so 56 to 64 hours as compared to 48 hours. So to our point earlier that we were discussing, death was determined more from, you know, the length of their protocol uh, versus being able to be objective and looking for actual findings in the normothermic group. And then lastly, a good number of patients in the normothermia group actually developed a fever, which might actually influence the ultimate results. So for me, the benefits of the study was that it was the first look at the role of TTM in non-shockable rhythms. And the results of the study showed moderate therapeutic hypothermia had good improved neurologic outcomes at 90 days. It's difficult to determine whether the benefit in neural outcome was truly from the intervention of hypothermia or simply the strict temperature control to avoid fevers. That's what we'll talk about a little bit more later. Regardless, I think being a community doc, this study, as well as the previous RCTs, may give us enough to suggest that we should be cooling all patients, shockable and non-shockable rhythms, until we have better studies to tell us otherwise. And I did want to give a shout out to Mark Ramsey, who I thought did a great job summarizing uh, this study specifically on the Rebel blog. And um, yeah, go to Rebel EM, you can check that out. I personally find this study really fascinating. Uh, and every time I read it, I sort of flip flop on exactly what, how it makes me interpret the literature. On the one hand, 
It's not a great study. Uh, it actually reminds me a lot of going through the stroke literature. We have our fragility index of one. We have neurologic outcomes that were done over the phone. It's an open label trial. Like this is not a good trial. I was going to say the exact same thing. It, it totally sounds like the TPA stuff where functional neurologic outcomes you know, are highly subjective. Stroke trials, I seem to kind of tweak that just to make it look good. But the bottom line is that mortality doesn't change. On the other hand, the other way I read this is the TTM didn't actually compare it to no temperature management. So this is the only the third trial of true hypothermia versus a control. And all three at the time that this is published are positive tri trials. Uh, they all have uh, pro problems, but they're all three positive. So I, I don't know exactly what the direct scientific answer is. In the end, the more I think about this, I, I, I think about it almost like the white blood cell count when you're making clinical decision making. It does sway my judgment and it's a positive trial. And so I think it makes me it, it increases my likelihood that hypothermia is actually helping patients, but it increases it like a white count of 14 or something like that. It, it, it increases my <laughs> chance a very small amount. <laughs> I love that. That's a good analogy. It yeah. I mean, good. the other problem with this again, and this is the second study where this happened, where a bunch of patients actually had fever, which is to me is like a massive confounding variable. Uh, because we're going to talk about fever in a little bit. Um, you know, it's generally agreed that fever is very bad post-arrest. Uh, you know, whether fixing that fever actually improves outcomes is another question, which we're going to answer a little bit later. But again, I think we need to treat the patients who are febrile post-arrest as kind of a separate group. And, and in this study, they did not. All right. So we've talked about uh, a couple of the early RCTs. We've talked about the TTM. Uh, we're finally now at this year's oh-so-controversial TTM2 trial. So, Justin, first, just tell us what they actually did in the trial. Yeah, so this is the same group that gave us the TTM1 trial. It was just published this year in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, it's a big uh, international multicenter RCT. It's open label again. Again, blinding's hard in hypothermia, although I'd love to see somebody try. They got 1,861 patients who were comatose uh, after being admitted to hospital with an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Uh, didn't matter, shockable and non-shockable, both got into this trial. They did exclude the sickest of the sick patients. So if you had, uh, if you were more than three hours post the beginning of your arrest, but post your recess, or if you had an unwitnessed arrest and you were in a systole on presentation, you were excluded, which makes sense. Uh, you know, th these patients have pretty dismal outcomes, but mostly I, I think this trial is pretty well represented of the kind of patients that we're going to, to see, although we can get at that a little bit into in the caveats. Uh, and I think everybody's already heard the results, so there's, there's no spoilers here. Primary outcome was death from any cause at six months, uh, was not changed, 48% versus 50%, no difference. They, there was no difference in any of their measurements of functional outcomes or quality of life. And they looked at a bunch of different subgroups. And I think that might actually be important as much as we don't talk about subgroups. Uh, it's nice to see science that is consistent and their lack of benefit was very, very consistent across every subgroup that they looked at. In fact, the only thing that had a positive p-value anywhere in the study or that looked positive was that there are more arrhythmias, which is something we've long known in the hypothermia uh, group. It's also important to note that those arrhythmias were associated with hemodynamic instability. So these weren't just like nothing dysrhythmias. These were dysrhythmias that actually caused hemodynamic instability and needed them to do something. So overall, no difference in the primary outcome of survival at six months and no difference in the secondary outcomes of functional status or quality of life, but more dysrhythmia is associated with hemodynamic instability in the group that was targeted for 
33 degrees. Now the caveats and now the controversy. So there, there's been a ton written about the TTM2 trial already. What are kind of the caveats of this trial and what can we take away from the TTM2? I think overall, this is an excellent uh, trial. It may not be excellent as compared to our, say, our data on aspirin for MI, but I, I think it is the highest quality literature that we've talked about today. But no matter how good the trial, there's always some caveats to talk about here. This trial was not blinded, uh, and that's pretty important. Now, unlike the very original uh, temperature management research, just like in the first TTM trial, they did blind some people in the in this trial. So the families were blinded, uh, and then uh, they did a standardized neuroprognostication exam uh, 96 hours after admission to hospital uh, by a blinded clinician. So I think that does uh, help mitigate some of the bias in the trial for an unblinded trial. So it's an improvement over Hacka and Bernard for sure. The arrhythmias is interesting to me. I think a lot of people will talk about it. And it's not, again, not just arrhythmias. It's arrhythmias with hemodynamic instability. And that, that sounds pretty worrying. And I think at the end of the day, maybe it's not uh, because why do we care about arrhythmias with hemodynamic instability? We care if the patients die or if they have a bad neurologic outcome, and, and they don't, right? There's no there's no difference in, in the outcomes there. So I'm not sure that, to, to me, that is going to be something that uh, changes practice. It ends up seeming to be net neutral, unless maybe there's a benefit from hypothermia that is outweighed by these arrhythmias. And if we could prevent the arrhythmias, maybe the benefit would come through. I, I'm not sure. But I think it's probably a distraction when the outcomes we care about are the main outcomes in the, in this trial. I think we almost shot ourselves in the foot here because the original trials were so unbelievable that we sort of have been expecting big, big outcomes, right? So they powered this trial based on this amazing 7.5% absolute risk reduction they saw in the original trials. That's sort of not something we see at all in, in critical care. Uh, and so this trial might not be big enough to see a smaller benefit between the two groups. Uh, but actually, when I look through, all the trends were actually in the opposite direction. If anything, this trial looks like hypothermia is a little bit harmful. Uh, my biggest trial with it, and again, we talked about this before. This group really wants to do a true replication of, of uh, Hacka and Bernard, uh, but they just weren't allowed. So we still don't have the group that we really, really need, which is just the, the group that gets no temperature control at all. This is still temperature control versus temperature control just with different targets. And I think that's a uh, big concern. There are a couple other caveats that, you know, when I read through, I don't think they're actually true caveats, but people are going to talk about them a, a lot. So I'll be interested to see what you guys have to say. One of the big things that people are going to talk a lot about is how long it took to cool patients. And I think, again, you know, if we were able to get to patients and cool them before they had their arrest, that might be a pretty good argument. But when I look at the time it took to cool patients in this in this trial, yeah, it takes a couple hours, but it's actually just as fast as either Bernard or Hawke trial. So it doesn't make a lot of sense that that's going to be the, the thing that distinguishes it from the original research, which showed a, a massive benefit. So I'm less concerned about time, uh, but I do know that some of the really amazing centers uh, can get people cooled faster than this trial did. The other thing that I think I think you guys will both have some comments on is the type of patients that get into this trial. And my take is actually the exact opposite of a lot of what I hear. These are well patients, right? They have a fair number of patients who got bystander CPR. They have a large number of patients with witness arrest, very different than the standard out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patient that we see in North America. To me, though, that is actually a benefit, not a downside. The patients that people are, are worried, you know, they say this doesn't extrapolate to their patients. Those patients are going to die. Those patients have universally dismal outcomes. So applying hypothermia doesn't make any sense. This is the sweet spot. These are the patients who have a 
chance. And hypothermia doesn't work here. So if hypothermia doesn't work here in the perfect Goldilocks zone, I think it's pretty unlikely that hypothermia is going to work in those patients that didn't get bystander CPR and had an unwitnessed rest and had a longer downside. That just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So I think people talk a lot about that. But in my mind, I don't think those make nearly as much uh, sense. But yeah, I think I think those are the major caveats that you'll hear about in this trial. Yeah, I have a slightly different opinion on, you know, the patients looking different in this trial than in most North American centers. You know, it might be that the patients who are down longer don't have a witness arrest. Those are the patients that might be the only ones who benefit from from hypothermia. The TTM trial did have twice the number of witness arrests. It had twice the number of bystander CPR, three times the frequency of shockable rhythms, and three times survival to hospital discharge. And that that is uh, pretty rare, at least compared to what the practice I see. And Justin, you'll be the first to agree with this, that the general classic EBM rule that if the patients are nowhere similar to the patients that you see in your practice, you should really think twice about applying any results of a study to your practice. So uh, Anton, that that actually is a really important point. It's a good reminder that, you know, the exclusion criteria that we use and the selection criteria we use for any study should definitely be applied to our own clinical setting uh, before we attempt to apply the, you know, outcome results. So that's a good refresher. Um, it, this is multifactorial, right? And and to Justin's point, it's almost like ECMO. Like if it doesn't work in those healthy healthier patients or the, the, you know, the patients with the potentially best outcome, then it's certainly not going to work in the sicker patients with, you know, greater comorbidities. But I see your point as well, Anton. So I don't know, I guess I'm somewhere in between both of you. You sound very <laughs> Canadian there, miss. We're supposed to be the ones that are What's like happening? the moderates. <laughs> You know, and I think you raise a really good point, but I think we, we could get pretty philosophical here, but I think it's a really important point to consider. So absolutely generalizability matters, but I think you sort of have to, to think pretty hard about trials that are uh, demonstrating a positive outcome versus demonstrating a negative outcome because there's a, a truism in the si- philosophy of science. You cannot prove a negative. It's just not not positive, uh, possible. So we're always looking to, uh, to prove a positive. And the issue, the broader issue is, did those original three RCTs that we talked about prove that hypothermia truly worked uh, to us? Like, as I said, as we went along, I've increased my, my the likelihood that hypothermia was going to work with each trial, but nowhere close to 100% that it works. So when a big, well-done trial like this uh, comes along, it, it may not perfectly apply to my patients, but you got to remember we do not know yet whether hypothermia helps in all in all those patients. So being very specific about the generalizability is, I think, a bit of a trap. And and the way I would, uh, the analogy I would use, uh, think about some pseudoscience or medical pra- practices. Uh, it'd be pretty easy for somebody to come along and do a study of acupuncture and and qi, and their study is positive. And they're, you know, it's got all the same problems that we're talking ab- about, all sorts of biases, it's unblinded, whatever, but it's positive. And you come along and do a very well done blinded clinical trial and it's negative. And what they're going to say is, well, actually you didn't include the right age group. Actually you included females when it should have only been males. It's, uh, it's very easy to throw caveat after caveat after caveat on a neg- negative uh, trial. So generalizability is in my mind, really, really important when you're talking about a positive trial and actually sometimes a little bit less important when you're talking about a negative trial for, for a treatment that isn't fully established yet, if that makes sense. All right. I'll I'll give you the last word on that one, Justin. (laughs) 
I think the bottom line with the TTM2 trial, we've got to ask ourselves, you know, does this mean we should still consider initiating cooling in our post-arrest patients in the ED, you know, despite the TTM2 trial being clearly a negative trial? Um, and I'm, I'm going to leave that answer up in the air for a few minutes. And I want to switch gears a little bit before we answer that question to kids. You know, everything we've talked about so far has focused on adults. We know pediatric arrests, although thankfully rare, are quite different than adult arrests. Is there any data relevant to children, Ms.? Yeah, you know, I'm really interested in this. I see quite a bit of kids in my practice, and there are a couple of RCTs of hypothermia post-arrest in peds populations, as well as one for in-hospital and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And really, the results were very similar. Both trials were individually reported as negative, so we can just look at the meta-analysis that combines the two. Uh, this is a study that was done in resuscitation 2018 by Schulfield et al. And um, this was a large multicenter randomized control trial from Canada, US, and UK. And that alone speaks to how impressive the study is, in my humble opinion. PEED studies are typically very small. So this study, they included over 624 patients, which is huge. Um, and half were in and half were out of hospital cardiac arrest. And what they did was they, within six hours after ROSC, comatose patients who were older than two years old and under 18 were randomly assigned to either therapeutic hypothermia with the target temperature of 33 degrees Celsius or therapeutic normothermia, again, that target temperature of 36.8. And they found that there was no difference in the primary outcome for neurologically intact survival at the one-year mark. So 28% versus 26%. So really no difference. The confidence interval there was 0.81 to 1.42. So p-value of about 0.61. And so the analysis of the combined data showed that hypothermia, as compared with normothermia, did not demonstrate a significant benefit in survival. And the trial was actually stopped uh, due to futility. So pretty interesting results, in my humble opinion. Yeah, I don't know that I've seen many uh, pediatric trials that have more than 500 patients. Like yeah. This is a pretty impressive undertaking. And the thing that surprises me most about this trial is we've all heard of every other RCT of hypothermia. And before I started prepping, I don't think that I'd actually uh, heard of, of this one. So I don't know why PEDS gets gets no love in the emergency medicine world. But I think this is really impo important data. Uh, it's a well done trial. You know, the caveats we talked about every other trial are still existent in in, in this trial. Uh, but you know, we're we're talking about shifting up and down. This definitely shifts down. Uh, and I think again, generalizability. You know, this should not be generalized to adult patients. But if anyone's brain is likely to be saved, generally, I think of pediatrics as being the ones who are most likely to bounce back. Although maybe you could argue they're going to bounce back without hypothermia anyway. So, so I don't know. But it is interesting. Completely negative trial. One of the best pediatric RCTs I've seen. Yeah, it, it does kind of shift me a little bit more towards no cooling, but. Uh, I want to shift gears again. So we've talked about adults, we've talked about peds, and we alluded to earlier about the topic of fever control being different than targeted temperature management. So, you know, when I hear experts talking about hypothermia, the most common takeaway I hear these days is that the exact temperature might not matter, but that it is absolutely essential to avoid fever. You hear that all the time. We know that fever is definitely associated with badness post-arrest, so it would seem perfectly reasonable to treat fever aggressively in the, in the post-arrest patient. Uh, Ms., can you tell us a little bit about the evidence for fever control in these patients? Well, this was, you know, really interesting for me. I've learned so much just even in uh, prepping with you guys. But 
it's true. The dogma or the belief that fever is bad, right? We, we think it's bad for the brain. It creates all sort of like injury to the metabolic cascades throughout the body. And we assume that's true. But actually, when you look at the literature, there are no formal RCTs that have been done on this. It's sort of extrapolated from other studies. There are a number of observational trials in cardiac arrest and critical care in general that demonstrate this association between fever and increased mortality. However, that is the only association. It does not mean that treating the fever alone will actually improve outcomes. So there's a strong association, just like there's a strong association, right, between drowning and ice cream sales, both of which happen in the summer, but that doesn't mean banning ice cream trucks will somehow prevent drowning. So, um, you know, we to, it's important to sort of separate out those things. There are a number of RCTs that look at the effects of fever control in the critically ill, but none that are specific to cardiac arrest, which I found really surprising. They were summarized well in a 2019 meta-analysis by Paul Young, and this was in Intensive Care Medicine, uh, 2019. What they did is they looked at an individual-level patient data meta-analysis of randomized control trials to compare the outcomes of ICU patients who received more active fever management with the outcomes of patients who received less active fever management. This encompassed over 1,400 patients from five different RCTs. Patients in the active fever management arm were statistically cooler over 48 hours of treatment with a mean difference of 0.3 to 0.7 degrees Celsius. There was really no difference in survival, which is interesting, and there was no difference in ICU or hospital length of stay. Now, a few caveats, because studies looked at very different fever control strategies. Some compared use of an antipyretic to placebo. Some looked at two different temperature thresholds to start treatment, uh, but could use any treatment strategy for temperature control. That is, there's a significant clinical like, heterogeneity there. It is possible, for example, that acetaminophen doesn't work, but external cooling does, and that distinction could be lost when all the data is combined. And let's be honest, these are small trials and collectively only about 1,400 patients. So the answer is far from definitive. I think none of the subgroups are positive, but the point estimates are all on the side of fever control being helpful. So the bottom line is that there's no clear exact evidence that fever control is beneficial in critically ill patients, but the available data is is consistent with the possibility that fever control could help prevent badness. And these trials were just underpowered um, and there is no evidence of harm at this point. Okay. So again, while fever is associated with bad outcomes, there's really no good evidence that controlling for fever is beneficial, but I suppose it still could be. I think that's right. that's super important and maybe needs to that's be repeated. The key word. Yeah, because yeah. this is one of those dogmas that I hear people just repeat so strongly over and over again. You must control fever. There's literally no evidence that we must must do it. And so far, all of the RCTs have been negative. I think it is reasonable to control fever. There's no evidence that it's harmful to control fever, uh, but there's actually literally not a single positive RCT that controlling fever in critically ill patients uh, helps helps these patients. I think that's pretty important to keep in mind, even if at the end of the day, we're probably going to all agree that we're going to control fever until uh, a trial is done. I do actually want to talk about therapeutic hypothermia for conditions that are not post-arrest. So things like brain bleeds and trauma, like I think cooling patients after insults to the brain in particular seems like it would be promising. Like we said earlier in the podcast, theoretically at least, hypothermia is supposed to protect the brain. Is there any evidence that hypothermia helps in other neurologic conditions that might make us more optimistic about the post-arrest temperature control? 
Yes, I I think the quick answer is probably no. I spent a lot of time. This is a a classic. Justin gets nerdy and spends hundreds of hours searching through uh, literature and references. Uh, I may not be as dude. I'm I'm glad. I'm glad we're going out for a beer tonight to relieve (laughs) you of your. I, I desperately need it. Uh, it's probably less thorough than I have been in the past with a six-month-old, a little bit less time to to dig into this. And you know, it's really hard to search for every single medical condition. So I'll, I'll admit that I could be mi- missing something. But for adult patients in general, I could not find any uh, other conditions where there's convincing evidence that hypothermia helps. And in, specifically the brain. The brain is where we think it's going to happen. Uh, there's some pretty good trials that actually all seem to err on the side of harm. So there's two really big RCTs in traumatic brain injury. Uh, a lot of people will have heard of these, polar and the Eurotherm trials, both big multicenter RCTs, and there was clearly no benefit. And in fact, the guidelines suggest against hypothermia because mortality is higher with hypothermia in traumatic brain injury. There's a fairly big status epilepticus trial, uh, 270 patients, the hibernatus trial, again, absolutely no benefit. Uh, there's a lot of smaller RCTs out there, uh, things that they cover stroke and sepsis and a number of things. There's there's one RCT that I think covers them relatively well, Kim uh, et al. in critical care medicine 2020. It's 14 RCTs, 2,600 uh, patients, and it's hypothermia for a bunch of critically ill patients uh, that are not cardiac arrest, so traumatic brain injury, sepsis, stroke, uh, and hypothermia increased mortality overall. 31% versus 25%, statistically significant, increased mortality, increased arrhythmias, hypothermia, not good in these adult patients. So that's not good. My overall view of non-cardiac arrest patients actually seems to seem like hypothermia is net harmful. So I have a question. Do you think, Justin, that that could be due to like if you're cooling these patients with brain bleeds or damage, aren't we making them more like coagulopathic and are they stroking out on top of their bleed? Why do you think that is? Yeah. So uh, for bleeds, yeah, it, it it's an interesting question, but it, yeah, it would never have made much sense to me because one of the things we do with trauma is really make sure people do not get hypothermia. Right. So I'm not super surprised those ones came out harmful. I'm not sure why uh, the ones in stroke and in sepsis would come out uh, uh, harmful. Like in sepsis, like, like Anton said, in kids, like we are always trying to get that fever down. Uh, so it sort of physiologically makes a little bit of sense that if you cool these patients, they would be better and you might protect some brain. And it doesn't seem to be the case. Now, these are pretty small small trials overall, but there's not an overwhelming evidence from other areas that, that hypothermia is helping across the board. It's fascinating. I will say there is one exception uh, that is it's really quite interesting. Um, and I've been meaning to look into for, for a while because I hear about it all the time in our hospital. You go to Code Pinks. And as part of neonatal resuscitation, inducing hypothermia for that perinatal hypoxic uh, arrest, that ischemic encephalopathy, it does look like it has better outcomes, both better mortality outcomes and better neurologic a- outcomes. Um, I didn't want to go into a complete deep dive into these uh, trials because there is still some uncertainty in the, these, uh, basically the exact same as what we talked about for the original. These remind me a lot of the Hakim Bernard, Bernard trials. They're not blinded. Assessing neuro outcomes in a kid who's under the age of 18 months, not exactly easy. So I think there's some subjectivity here that's maybe even worse than the adult trials. But there is a, is a, there are multiple positive RCTs, and it's a pretty promising signal. Uh, but with the caveats, I would not be surprised if one big RCT came along and sort of overruled those uh, results that turned out to be uh, negative. I also think if any group is likely to benefit from hypothermia, these little kids, it makes the most sense to me. A, their event happens right in front of a care provider, right? The code pink's already been called. The the pediatrician's there. The obstetrician is there. It's not like you had your arrest at home and it took you an hour to get to the hospital. So if time really did matter, like 
the kids are the ones who are going to get it. And I think I said early in the in the podcast, I just sort of expect if anyone is going to have bounce back well from a neurologic injury, kids are the ones who uh, seem to seem to do it. So it, it is quite possible that these are true results. That makes it hard for me to extrapolate them, uh, which is what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, you know, it could hypothermia in adult cardiac arrest work? You know, is there other forms of evidence? I don't think this evidence really helps us answer that question in any way. I think bottom line is, for the most part, actually, if anything, it looks a little bit harmful, which isn't great. There's this little bit of a promise in the neonates for what for that means. I don't think this data is helping us decide whether or not to, to cool patients in adult cardiac arrest, though. All right. I I was really hoping that in, in peds and in brain insults and in something else that, that my optimistic nature has been utterly crushed <laughs> by this. But uh, let's not give up so easily. What about the recent Ilcor's systematic review? Like they've got some pretty amazing scientists contributing to their guidelines. Justin, what does Ilcor have to say about post-arrest cooling? Yeah, so right after TTM2 came out, they updated their guidelines. They um, they go through a multi-stage process. So they've gone through this public commentary period. So they haven't officially published their finest, final version yet as the time we um, are talking. But these are their thoughts based on their systematic review. I don't expect them to t- change much. So in terms of their systematic review, they call everything a low certainty evidence. Um, and they're comparing hypothermia to normal thermia or fever prevention. That, that's basically what we have after, after TTM. So it's not to no treatment at all. And basically they tell us they don't think that there's any difference in survival to hospital discharge in terms of survival with a favorable neurologic outcome at the time of hospital discharge or 30 days. There's no difference. Survival at 90 to 180 days, no difference. Uh, Favorable neurologic outcomes at 90 to 100 days, no difference. So basically they they conclude no difference across the things that they looked at here. Uh, Again, they're comparing uh, against a comparison group that actually had their temperature controlled, or at least has uh, fever pre- prevention. And when I look at the results, I will note, it's pretty important here, there's wide confidence intervals around all these results. Uh, so not only is the the quality of the data itself uh, low, but the certainty is pretty low as, as well. These pooled results could be consistent with benefit, but they could also be consistent with the harm. There's just a large spectrum that the science could be telling us is going on. Okay, so the systematic review seems to come to pretty similar conclusions to this review that we're doing. I did look through their their recommendations and they're very practical in terms of what we do. Biz, could you just go through for us what the ILCOR recommendations were? Sure. So they suggest actively preventing fever by targeting temperatures to less than 37.5 degrees Celsius for those patients who remain comatose after ROSC from cardiac arrest. Now, admittedly, that is low certainty evidence or weak recommendation, but it's, I think, reasonable. They also state that whether subpopulations of cardiac arrest patients may benefit from targeting hypothermia between 32 and 34 degrees remains uncertain. I think we would all agree with that. Comatose patients with mild hypothermia after ROSC should not be actively warmed to achieve normothermia. That's actually a good practice statement. And they recommend against the use of pre-hospital cooling with rapid infusion of large volumes of uh, cold IV fluids immediately after ROSC. That's actually a strong recommendation with moderate certainty of evidence. Justin, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the the themes here. So the value of replication. We've talked about many times before on Journal Jam in terms of replicating studies in terms of TTM, TTM2. What's your thoughts on that? 
it's, it's key. And we'll say this almost every Journal Jam episode probably, but replication is really essential to good science. And I think this hypothermia literature is pretty classic. So you start, it's a classic pattern. We talked about it in the TXA episode a lot. You start with some pretty small trials that have a lot of sources of bias and they look really positive. And what we do instead of good science, which is to replicate those trials and see if there's a really uh, true benefit there, what we get to do is in medicine, we get super excited and change entire medical systems, spend a crap ton of money. um, And then a decade later, it turns out that the larger, higher quality uh, studies end up being negative. That's a pattern that I think we need to come to recognize it in medicine because we fall into this trap over and over and over again. Again, we, we recognize it in the TXA literature. To me, this literature looks very similar to the stroke literature, except for we haven't had those big follow-up studies uh, done yet. Now, again, I will say technically, we haven't actually haven't had the replication study here yet either. We don't have that large, high-quality hypothermia versus no temperature management at at all. I talked a little bit about Nielsen wanting to get that done and not getting it done. Luckily, TTM3 is already underway, and that's exactly what that that study will be. It'll finally be a... The the control group won't even get fever control. We'll see whether any temperature control uh, matters at at all. So it is coming. But I think the, the EBM point is don't get carried away by small studies with lots of sources of bias, we know we need those big follow-up studies. That's really important as part of science. Yeah. And in particular, I think when it comes to the question of fever control, we definitely need bigger studies, more studies. We even have less of a clear answer with fever control, which seems to be the dogma now, uh, than we do with patients who are are normothermic post-arrest. Okay. We're in the home stretch now. So let's give our take-home clinical application of of the data uh, and of the journal jam. Uh, I'll go first. You know, I think the intensivists are still going to be arguing over who should be targeted for under 37 and a half and who should be targeted for under 36 and who should be targeted to 33. In other words, I think there is really no clear answer yet. I think we need some RCTs comparing more targets, including febrile patients, uh, different patient populations, different time of initiation of cooling, and different methods of cooling, because they're kind of all over the place still. I think one thing is pretty clear, that if you are cooling patients to a target of 33 and you run into hemodynamic instability and, and lethal dysrhythmias or increasing sedation requirements and things just are not going well, you know, whatever kind of badness you have, you should change your target for something warmer. But this is kind of all ICU stuff, and I'm not an intensivist. In the ED, for the hyperthermic post-arrest patient, I think at this point it's not unreasonable to initiate cooling. And to do this, I think we should be using small boluses of cooled crystalloid, keeping a very close eye on volume status. Some of our, our shops have cooling blankets or these fancy thermoregulated, uh, thermoregulated cooling devices. Um, if you got those, great. If you don't have those, then ice packs of the armpits and the groins, I think, are still reasonable. But all of this in the ED is assuming that my team is not busy with more important evidence-based tasks and that I have time before the patient is transported to the ICU. You know, in my opinion, getting a post-arrest patient to the ICU as soon as possible is one of the most important goals after ROSC. So cooling a patient post-arrest should never delay getting them to the ICU. For the normal thermic patients, it's ultimately going to be what the ICU wants. So for those patients, I'll simply ask them what they want. So as soon as I get ROSC, I'll get them on the phone, 
hey, I've got this normothermic post-arrest patient. Do you want me to cool or not? Um, so I think that's kind of my practical takeaway from all of this. Ms., what do you think? Yeah, I'm on the same page with you, Anton. I mean, follow ILCOR, prevent fever, limit fluids, do what's reasonable. But to your point, I think uh, when we apply this, even for myself, I work in two very different settings, community, small emergency department, and then a large academic institution. And I'll tell you what, there's no way in the community I would ever have enough resources. I mean, this is two, three nurses in that room constantly, right, trying to bring a patient down, manage it. And academics is a lot different. You have far more resources at your disposal, not to mention residents who are chomping at the bit for this type of experience. And so I'd say at minimum, it's reasonable to utilize, you know, the best cooling device you have, ideally one that's thermoregulated. Sure, I'll start with some small bowls of fluids, prevent fever, but honestly, ain't nobody got time for titrating their sedation and goosebumps all the way down to 33 degrees in the emergency department. I'm working on getting this patient out of my ED and upstairs to an ICU where they can be properly managed. That's my two cents. Yeah, I don't think that I can disagree with you. I, I have a hard time. I bounce back and forth on this literature a lot. I, I've honestly been very skeptical of hypothermia ever since I first read the Hacka and Bernard trials uh, when I came across them in residency. And I, But I do think we need to be really cautious of our interpretation of the newer TTM uh, data. I, I think probably the only major mistake here would be having too strong an opinion in one way or the other because the data just isn't strong enough there to have a strong opinion. I think there are multiple signals of benefit uh, from the first two RCTs to the Hyperion trial, but those signals are at very high risk of bias. So just the level of evidence here is is low. I think a single really strong RCT could overrule those positive signals. But we have to keep in mind that neither of the TTM trials actually compared hypothermia to a true control group of no temperature management. Again, there's some interesting politics there. The, the point is, it would be a really big mistake, and I fear some people will make this mistake, is to look at the TTM trials and decide that we don't have to worry about temperature at all. Uh, I think we might get there potentially, but that's not what our current level of evidence uh, says. Conversely, again, some people will say that we must control fever, but we got to keep in mind there's actually not a single RCT that says that controlling fever leads to better outcomes. So that's still an untested hypothesis. So what do we do right now? I mean, the real answer, everybody hates it when we discuss science, but the real answer is we, we need more studies. And luckily, as I said, that TTM3 trial is underway. We'll, we will get better, better, better data here. If you ask me to put money on it, I would bet you that TTM3 will also be negative. That will actually show that controlling fever doesn't matter all that much, but uh, I know people will disagree with me uh, for sure. Uh, but while we wait for TTM3, there's never been any signal of harm from just avoiding fever. Uh, so while we're waiting for it, I, even though we have to recognize there's no standard of care, there's no solid evidence, I think it's pretty reasonable to make sure that we're avoiding fever in the meantime. Like you say, Anton, we shouldn't be, you know, putting fever control ahead of some other really important uh, intervention. Uh, I don't think there's any need to be targeting all the way down to 33 de three degrees, but that's what we're going to do in the meantime. In other words, that's a very long-winded way of saying, I'm just going to follow exactly what Ilkor said, because I think they got hit the, the nail on that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I guess we can all agree uh, that we should not be dogmatic about cooling or not cooling. We shouldn't be taking away from the TTM trials that cooling is out. Uh, it's still a consideration. Uh, it sounds like we're actually all pretty much in agreement, which is kind of boring. Uh, but <laughs> actually, it's also really refreshing in that these days, especially during the pandemic, it seems like people are becoming more and more and more polarized on their views for just about <laughs> everything in the universe. Um, but I digress. 
I think we're going to wrap it up. Thanks so much, Dr. Morrison and Dr. Morgenstern. We should certainly get together for drinks or something when this darn pandemic is over, shall we? Yes, it has been ridiculously so long overdue. I'm jealous you guys get to go have a beer. But thank you both so much. I've learned a lot from this, so I appreciate it. Yeah, I can't wait to see you in person. Take care, guys. (laughs) 